0: Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Sima Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today's episode is sponsored by Wesper. Wesper was not involved in developing the content of this episode. A few months ago, we chatted with members of the AASM Emerging Technology Committee and discussed some of the novel HSAT devices on the market. Today we will explore mandibular movement signal in more detail. This episode will focus on the science behind the signal and not billing or coding aspects due to the wide variability in insurance plans and policies. We will discuss the signals and algorithms. Here to help us understand this newer metric are Dr. Atul Mahotra and Professor Jean-Louis Pepin. Dr. Malhotra is a past president of the ATS He is the Feral Presidential Chair of Respiratory Medicine and Research and Chief of Pulmonary, Critical Care, Sleep Medicine and Physiology at UCSD. He is active clinically and has published extensively on sleep apnea and other topics. Professor Jean-Louis Pepin is a professor of clinical physiology at the Université Grenoble in France. He directs a translational research team examining the cardiometabolic consequences of intermittent hypoxia. He has led clinical trials and real-world observational studies evaluating CPAP and lifestyle interventions. By way of full disclosure, both are paid consultants for Sunrise. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks, sir.
0: So, Professor Pepin, what is mandibular movement signal?
1: Uh, You know, it's a
2: very uh, interesting and uh, relevant signal Uh, you can have different features reflecting uh, both uh, the respiratory drive to ventilation and the activity of the upper airway muscles. When looking at the uh, different features of the signal, you can get information uh, regarding uh, respiration, uh, central and obstructive events and you can also have uh, important uh, information related to sleep stage. You have different uh, patterns of mandibular movements uh, with uh, irregular and rapid mandibular movements during a light sleep and more regular with a high amplitude mandibular movement during deep sleep. So you can uh, capture both information regarding ventilation, respiratory drive, and sleep.
0: So is it all about then the amplitude?
2: Yes, it's uh, the amplitude. You can also uh, have uh, the degree of mouth opening. And for example, during uh, uh, microarousal at the end of uh, respiratory events, Uh, you can easily identify uh, mouth-closing, characterizing
1: uh, the Hmm. So, Dr. Malhotra,
0: how did you figure this out?
1: Well, I give credit to Dr. Pepin, and and (laughs) kind of a guest at the party on, but uh, I have done a lot of work on upper airway muscle activity and respiratory effort and thoracic pressure changes. So I think the physiology is pretty solid that those variables are important.
0: So, what does condyle rotation tell us, Professor Pepe?
1: So, so the mobile components
2: of uh, these joints are informing uh, on the activity of the mandibular elevator muscles and also on the mandibular depressor muscles, for example, the the genioid muscles. So, when looking at the different components of the condyle rotation... Uh, again, you have information on the activity of the upper airway muscles and drive to respiration.
0: So, help me understand: How does this reflect esophageal manometry?
1: Well, I think the uh, metric of respiratory drive is uh, related to sort of brainstem output and, and phrenic motor output to the to the diaphragm. And so, uh, when there's diaphragm contraction, there's a drop in intrathoracic pressure. That's reflected in esophageal pressure. The subtle mandibular movements that occur, with um, the, that are measured by different devices, are reflective of those changes in intra pressure. And I must admit, I wouldn't have guessed a priori that you could judge intra pressure with mandibular movements. But the data right. do look fairly compelling.
0: Huh. So if it's something that sits, so this device sits under the lip, right?
1: Yeah, it's on the chin, yeah.
0: Yeah, so then does bruxism cause interference or is this something Is this something we can use to diagnose bruxism or how does that work?
2: Yes, we have published uh, one clinical case is in chest and uh, also a validation study. Actually, um, you can diagnose bruxism, but uh, the, the aspect or the patterns related to a bruxism activity are Completely different uh, as the sleep, rhythmic, masticatory, muscle activity is completely different uh, from uh, a respiratory effort. So you can easily uh, differentiate uh, bruxism from other sleep disorders. Uh, and uh, yes, you can uh, use this uh, uh, sensor on the chin uh, to identify bruxism. And there is no interference between huh. bruxism. Uh, uh, measurement and as uh, mandibular movement uh, a signal.
0: So even if if somebody has bruxism then and they have sleep apnea, you can still differentiate the two and yeah. pick up on the sleep apnea. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and probably you know about studies showing that uh, uh, there is an interaction between uh, a respiratory event and especially uh, uh, obstructive hypopneas and bruxism. So it's really useful to have. Uh, as a different information regarding both bruxism and uh, respiratory events.
0: So, what about something like RBD? Does that impact this mandibular movement signal?
2: Yes, when you have some uh, motor activity uh, uh, at the level of the mandible, obviously this is going to impact the mandibular movement signal. Again, it's a different behavior. Uh, but to be uh, clear, we have no existing study addressing specifically this population with uh, RBD. We have data on sleep braxis We have some clinical cases. We have uh, personal experience, but uh, they have no study published yet on the RBD and mandibular movement signal.
0: So of course, the big question is, you know, we have all of these novel HSAT devices, right? And all of these new signals. <laughs> and so we always we always want to try to understand them a little bit better. And it, I think for me anyway, I always want to go back to, well, how does this compare to polysomnography?
1: Yeah, I can make a couple comments about that. Um, we, Dr. Pepin, and I and others um, through Medics Cloud, have published a, a global estimate of sleep apnea up to a billion people worldwide and many more at risk, and they all need sort of chronic management. So the idea that all those people would get a polysomnogram um, and see right. a board-certified sleep specialist seems unlikely. And so I think uh, developing techniques that can give us enough information to guide management is necessary. And the other point to make is that more and more literature is coming out now about the limitations of a single night assessment. And so if you just do a snapshot in time, Sleep apnea is a dynamic disease, and so a single night polysomnogram may not be as gold of a standard as we'd like to believe. And so one of the advantages of this technique or other techniques with home testing is serial assessments where you can get night-to-night variability and changes over time that may have predictive value. The recent paper in Chest out of Australia where they could predict hypertension, much better with serial data than a single point in time. Sure.
0: Yeah. so your your point about serial data is really important you know our colleague dr Dennis Wong in um, California talks about this all the time right that one night in the lab is you know maybe a little bit artificial and does that really reflect what's happening at home
2: yes I, I think it's a crucial point and uh, it's not only true for the generalist pathway but when you are looking to treatment efficiency it's also important to and multiple nights at home. And going back to, to your point regarding validation against polysomnography, uh, we have several uh, uh, data published in, in good journals uh, uh, regarding the, the validation of mandibular movement against polysomnography, uh, involving uh, several thousand patients now in JAMA Network Open, in the Blue Journal. so. <clears throat> The data are consistent across study, and there is a a quite good validation, specifically in a a more to moderate OSA. And as you know, in this population, it's the more difficult situation to have an accurate diagnosis. So, yes, the validation uh, uh, against polysomnography is existing, and uh, yes, it's uh, uh, one of the major. Uh, challenge and advantage of this new home sleep sleep testing is to make available several
1: nights of recording at home. And if I could add to that, if I may, um, the apnea-hypopnea index, these things are helpful in terms of predicting complications, but one of our goals is to do even better with additional signals. And so Dr. Pepin and his group, and I'm a co-author, There's a paper in the European Respiratory Journal a few months ago predicting hypertension uh, based on estimates of uh, respiratory drive, and that's above and beyond what the traditional polysomnographic measures would tell you. And There's a paper in peer review currently about diabetes, and so it may tell us what we're learning from polysomnography, but there may be additional information as well that has predictive value.
0: Do you think that this will be a signal that shows up on polysomnography and, and sort of becomes one of the standard things we look at?
2: Yes, you, you can use this signal as an additional or an external signal if you want in polysomnography. And, and and the point discussed by Atul is important because the global burden of respiratory effort across the night is probably relevant to predict uh, cardiometabolic and uh, uh, comorbidities. So we need, as you know, not only the HCI, but new metrics, including uh, hypoxic burden, autonomic response, and the characterization uh, during the all night of respiratory A4 is probably interesting and uh, related to the outcomes.
0: So help me wrap my brain around this. I'm, I'm trying to picture what the signal looks like and how then – How do I differentiate between central and obstructive events? I mean, A, can I? And if I can, how does that work?
2: Uh, There is It's like it's close to the uh, the esophageal pressure signal. When you have an increase in respiratory drive and then in respiratory effort, you have an increasing peak-to-peak amplitude of the mandibular signal. And that oscillates and the breathing frequency. It's like esophageal pressure again and when you have a typical microarousal, the mouth is closing and you can see the end of the episode of respiratory effort. There are several uh, uh, validation studies against uh, esophageal manometry with different uh, devices using mandibular movements. And it, it was quite uh, convincing, uh, the comparison between the two techniques. And as you know, there are some limitation with the bands, the abdominal bands, especially in, in obese patients, so uh, the potential is
1: important. If I could add to your earlier question, um, Dr. Kozla, um, about adding the signal to polysomnography, mm-hmm there's an argument that the polysomnogram is already kind of cumbersome and adding additional signals may well have value. But at the end of the day, if we throw out 99% of the data and just report an apnea hypopnea index, it's not going <laughs> to... My, uh, my bias is that if we're going to use a polysomnogram, it has to provide additional information that may have prognostic or therapeutic guidance or other kind of value. Otherwise, you know, I think we can probably get A diagnosis probably with a questionnaire or wearable technology or other home diagnostic devices, and so my goal isn't to rescue polysomnography per se, but to make it kind of smarter in terms of rather than throwing out all that information, we can add additional information. This may well be a useful signal that we can get non-invasively.
0: Well, and that's exactly it, right? You've hit on something really important that we've talked about a lot. You know that we we have all this wonderful data. And then we just distill it down to this AHI, and you know we're we're missing so much of this robust information. And how can we do better about capturing that and really you know impacting patients' lives in a in a positive way?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, one of my former trainees is now independent. Scotty Sands has done a lot of work on signal processing, other things to try and get mechanistic insights from from the signals. And having additional data certainly helps inform those sorts of Analyses. And ultimately, if we can use personalized medicine approaches or stack the deck in our favor in terms of who's high risk of cardiovascular disease or who's high risk of Alzheimer's or cancer, we can guide therapeutics mm. accordingly. Mm.
0: So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the mandibular movement signal and the algorithm of the device. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. With Wesper, sleep management is so easy. You could do it, well, in your sleep. Wesper delivers a powerful sleep management platform built to address sleep conditions from testing through ongoing care. From home sleep apnea testing and sleep disorder testing to remote patient monitoring, patient titration, outcome management, and much more. It's sleep management made easy. Learn more at wesper.co. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Malhotra and Dr. Pepin about mandibular movement signal and the algorithm utilized by this device. So, is there a flow sensor on this device?
2: Uh, Yes. In in version 2, there is a a thermistor. Uh, It is uh, important to say it's a, a thermistor and not nasal pressure. At the top of the sensor, so as you know, it's a qualitative signal. It's not a, a measurement of nasal pressure, but it's a complementary signal, and yes, there is a term is
0: So then, is it considered a flow device?
2: Yes, for for example, for reimbursement in different countries in Europe and uh, potentially in the U.S., uh, it can be considered as a as a flow device.
0: And then is the information from the thermistor then, is that part of the algorithm?
2: No. The algorithm for the moment uh, is derived by the information of manual movement only, but there are some ongoing development to include both uh, thermistor information
1: and SpO2.
0: Ah, okay. So work in progress.
1: Yeah, work in progress. Uh, just for the listeners, um, in some countries, including France, the re- reimbursement requirement is to have a flow sensor. There's also a move in some regions of the United States to insist on a flow signal. So many devices are adding a flow signal, whether they use it or not, as a separate conversation.
0: <laughs> well, we've heard that about other devices, haven't we? That yeah. they, they're just sort of adding this flow sensor to satisfy that requirement in Europe.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's almost a dummy signal that... um is there for that reason and full full disclosure? I consult consult for Zola as well who bought Edemar. Okay, and they had a similar issue in France and other countries.
0: So you know what I'm kind of thinking about. You know we've we've talked a little bit about the benefit of longitudinal data, and then I think to me that just leads into follow up for you know non PAP devices. So is this something you can use with you know oral appliance therapy? Um, and, and specifically, because I'm wondering if wearing an oral appliance then kind of limits the rotation of the condyles, or is it okay to use in this scenario?
2: You know, w- we have now uh, a noise data set uh, using uh, mandibular movement measurements for oral appliance situation. Uh, you are right. Obviously, this is uh, changing the the amplitude of the signal, but the sensitivity uh, of the detection of the mandibular movement is uh, is quite high. It's 0.3 millimeters. So you can use the device for uh, oral appliance titration. Um, and uh, with a minimal amount of advancement and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the limitation of the move opening by closure, this is working. And uh, we have now several hundred uh, patients uh, recorded with uh, mandibular movement during uh, oral appliance uh, titration. And you know it's, it's quite difficult to have several sleep studies uh, uh, to titrate oral appliances, so it's the potential is high in this indication.
0: What about like a like a nasal EPAP device like Bongo? Could you use it with that?
2: Yes, you can use uh, the the signal and the sensor, obviously, with another mask. But when you have a full face mask, you should uh, uh, slightly uh, uh, displace the sensor uh, mm. at the border of the interface. And uh, we have more limited experience with face full, full mask, but with another mask under CPAP, it is working perfectly well. And it is interesting because you can uh, demonstrate the relation between move opening and the leaks. So you have uh, uh, an indirect explanation of the uh, leaks level uh, related to the, the amplitude of mouth opening.
0: So what about like a nasal EPAP device like Bongo or you know, the defunct ProVent?
2: Uh, I don't know. I told from your side, but uh, we have no experience. With
1: yeah, I, I think it's fair to say, Dr. Kozlov, for many of these questions, we we need more data. This is a really <laughs> that's fair <laughs> so, You know, can we do diagnose pseudo rvd in people with sleep? Habit? You know, the answer is maybe, but the the question is uh, at this point we're we're kind of early in the game, and the validation data are quite robust, but we don't use a lot of bongo or or Provent here, so I, I don't have any information about that. My guess is it'll be useful, but we need validation data with concurrent gold standards yeah. to really draw conclusions.
0: Yeah, because that's something we we sometimes struggle with is to do appropriate follow up, right? Especially if there's no longer an adapter to bring them into the lab, right? So you know, you use sort of a pat based study, and, and you know, because you want to have some sort of mechanism to figure out if this device is working for them or not.
1: I think that's a challenge in general. With some of those mm-hmm. interventions. they're amenable to uh, diagnostic testing, but the are local artifacts, whatnot. So, if you're using a nasal pressure and the nose is occluded, it's not a very meaningful signal. So, I tend to rely on your know, EEG or D sets or other things when there's uh, lo- local issues there. But
0: yeah, or, uh, or pat signal, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Something peripheral, but uh, you know, we need more data. I think that's a fair statement
0: so i was I was reading about this device, and I understand there is PPG signal that you can get. um and i and I would love to understand this better. Like how do you get this from a signal that sits on the chin, like just under the lip?
2: yeah you, you, as you know the face is uh, extremely vascularized, so you, you it's the perfusion is very good, so. You can uh, measure some SPO2, uh, and uh, you can extract the data of the PPG signal. There are other devices doing that. Uh, so there is a, a preliminary validation, and this data have been accepted by, by the FDA. So it's an interesting uh, additional signal in, uh, in uh, version 2, uh, full reflectance. And uh, again, you know that hypoxic burden, uh, SPO2 data, and uh, PPG uh, amplitude variation are related to outcomes. So it, it might be a very uh, interesting and complementary signal for, for the device. So it's reflectance, uh, it's uh, vascularization uh, on the lip, and uh, it looks like uh, working very well. But again, it's fair to say that we need additional data for the full validation in different patients'
1: population. We've seen oximetry work on various different body parts. So we don't have to use the digit, for example, use an earlobe or there's other well perfused parts of the body that the oximetry is tried and true. And so that that part I'm pretty confident about.
0: So is there a group of people we shouldn't be using this in? So specifically, I guess I'm thinking about the people with, you know, lots of facial hair.
2: Yeah, uh, it, 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 it's a potential limitation of facial hair, but uh, in, in some patients, you have to shave a, a mm-hmm. very limited area to, to put the sensor on, but uh, in general, it's it's not a significant problem.
0: Yeah, I, so full disclosure, I, I played around with it, and I put one on my 15-year-old. Um, he was already asleep, and he has facial hair, <laughs> so I just slapped it on him and seemed to be okay. <laughs> Are there any other limitations of this test?
1: Well, the, the other point I was going to make, which may be stating the obvious to, to a sleep audience, but to state the obvious, you know, there's lots of other sleep disorders, uh, narcolepsy or periodic limb movements or mm-hmm. uh, other things. And more, <laughs> it's quite common that we see patients referred after home sleep testing, saying, uh, you know, the diagnosis, sleep apnea wasn't even in the differential diagnosis, but they've gotten diagnosed. Oh, good
0: grief.
1: Uh, so, thinking about other sleep disorders is certainly uh, part of part of the discussion.
0: Which kind of fits, right, the bigger conversation around appropriate use of HSAT. Right, and so right. yeah.
1: You know, it's not a contraindication per se, just maybe more useful in some groups than others, depending on your pretest probability for sleep apnea.
0: So talk to me a little bit about the patient-facing component, right? We're gonna do multi-night testing and maybe some longitudinal stuff. So tell me about the patient-facing app.
2: Uh, the research app, uh, uh... Supporting the patient to set up the device at home and allowing to collect some uh, patient questionnaire, for example, the uh, insomnia severity uh, scale uh, questionnaire or the, the Epworth questionnaire. And at the end of the night, uh, via the app, there is a feedback uh, to the prescriber, obviously, and the patient regarding uh, the... Uh, results of, of the night, uh, the number of events, and uh, the hypnogram. And uh, I think in the future, uh, they will, uh, would like to develop uh, some uh, patient-reported uh, outcomes included in the app, uh, and uh, it would be great to have uh, uh, longitudinal data regarding sleepiness, fatigue, uh, etc., uh, it could be a good combination for digital medicine in treating the sensor and the app.
0: Oh, so you're collecting subjective data.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, final thoughts? Well, I'll just say um, home sleep test is here to stay. I think for too long we probably held on to polysomnography and, as we've all emphasized, ignored the vast majority of the data coming from the signal. So I think uh, part of a comprehensive evaluation and high-volume uh, sleep center is trying to diagnose and treat many different patients. And I think having access to home sleep testing, allowing serial assessments, and providing data that give additional predictive value to traditional metrics is likely the way of the future.
0: Dr. Pepe?
2: Yes, I, I think the we have to completely reshape the different clinical pathways in the management of sleep disorders. Using not only innovative sensors but also some uh, uh, digital medicine pathways, uh, collecting prompts uh, with uh, multiple night recordings at home, uh, also under treatment again, uh, monitoring CPAP, monitoring the efficacy of the different primary therapy for assays. So it, it's a very uh, interesting uh, challenge. Uh, uh, for, for the the field to improve uh, this pathway in so many patients to uh, where the sleep labs are, are not in situation to address this very important question
0: Well thank you so much for joining us today and helping us understand mandibular movement signal and this novel HSAT device
1: Thank you so much Thank you so much
0: Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Khosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.